Appreciate your patience. Class? Okay, I got it. I think we're cooking over here. So, we're beginning a study today in the book of Psalms. Did you know that? Okay, well now you do. We're in Psalms and there are... How many Psalms? Yeah, 150. Now here's what's a bit of a challenge in studying the Psalms. They're not topically arranged. Uh, So it's a little hard to know how to approach it. For instance, there are topics that run through the book of Proverbs, but the Psalms are different than that. So Brother Chuck and I, we just fess up. We're just going to see what happens as we go along uh, because uh, neither he nor I have have been this way before. So we're really looking forward to the study because it's a fresh one for us and we appreciate your patience <laughs> as this unfolds. Although there isn't a topical arrangement to the Psalms, I will tell you by way of background, there are five divisions in the Psalms. And the divisions seem to relate to chronology, the time period in which each individual segment of the five was added to the entire collection of the Psalms. So, for instance, the first 41 Psalms would be in section 1. And then Psalms 42 to 32, the next 30, that's section 2. And Psalms 73 to 89, that's part 3. And 90 to 106 is the fourth part. And the fifth and final is Psalm 107 to 150. Now, it's not so important for you to know that specifically as much as you know that's the way they're divided. And at the end of each of the five divisions, there is something in common. They all end with what we call a doxology, which is a praise to God, or a benediction, which is a blessing given to God. So that's how each of the five segments in the book of Psalms ends. If I were to ask you uh, who the author of the Psalms were, what name immediately pops into your mind? David. And you are partially correct. Uh, Because David's name is attached to over 70 of the Psalms. Hence, we attribute all of them to him. But that's not actually true. A number of the Psalms are anonymous. We don't know for sure who wrote them. And others have the name of a different Psalm writer other than David attached to them. So though most are written by David, not all are. Now if I use the word genre, I think that's a French word. Would I be right about that? Genre? Sounds like a French word. And it's spelled, uh, I think, G-E-N-R-E, genre, or uh, for you Texans, genre, genre. (laughs) So if I use the term genre, for instance, if I say literary genre, would you give me an idea what I'm talking about? (laughs) Literary genre, does that mean anything to you? How would you define that? It's the area of the book, like nonfiction, you know. That is good. Yeah, different areas or different forms of literature like nonfiction you gave as an example, and you're absolutely right. 
So did you know in the Bible there are a number of different literary genre? So for instance, in the Bible there's prose, there's historical narrative, there's something called apocalyptic, uh, and, and that would be something like the book of Revelation, uh, and uh, there's something called poetry. A poem is a literary genre. You do not read a poem uh, the way you would a history, for instance, of the United States. It's a different literary form. Now I bring that out because in handling the scriptures as best we could, and we tried to do that, it's helpful to know the literary genre you're looking at because they're each interpreted differently. For instance, the book of Proverbs is a literary genre consisting of Proverbs. And a, prof a proverb is not meant to be a scientific statement. It's meant to be a general statement of truth. So, for instance, if you were visiting the Pacific Northwest, you said to someone native to, say, Portland, Oregon, you said, how is the weather here? That person might say, oh, it rains all the time. But that is not a precise meteorological conclusion. It actually doesn't rain all the time. But it rains so often that to communicate that to you, that person is uttering a proverb, a statement of general truth. So for instance, in reading the Proverbs, that's how you want to interpret it. It's not meant to indicate there are no exceptions to what's stated in Proverbs because they're statements of general truth. So I point all that out because uh, the Psalms are poems. It's a collection of poetry. And so in handling it over the next few months or years or however long we're in it, um, we want to remind you that these are poems. Now, they're poems um, to which musical accompaniment was added. And so you'll see notation uh, next to some of the psalms that actually are musical notations, no different than those of you who are in choir and orchestra over here would see in your music. Uh, some actually says this is for the choir director. Uh, it'll say Selah, pause here, just like you do uh, in handling music. So what we're going to look like is actually the, the songbook of ancient Israel. So to give you an idea of, of how they worshipped, you might say. Now as a sidelight, let me just tell you this. Once I was having a good discussion with somebody about different uh, musical styles in worship. And, um, that happens once in a while. And um, it, was a, it was a quite a pleasant discussion, and I hope, I hope we're able to be pleasant even about our different takes on things. And, th and that was the nature of this conversation. And this man said to me he would prefer for us to go back to a traditional style of worship, and I guess I was—I uh, didn't have breakfast on that day, so I was uh, obnoxious again. Amen. Amen. First amen in a long time, and I simply said I agree with you. How far back 
uh, to a traditional worship style do you want to go? In other words, why stop in the 1800s when many of our wonderful hymns were written? Let's go back to the ancient hymn book of Israel, uh, the Psalms, and do it that way. In other words, next week I hope to see you with your loud cymbals your tambourines, and don't forget your dancing shoes. Because that's what characterized traditional worship in ancient Israel. So you just want to be careful about that argument, and it's better to say there's a worship style that has more meaning to me than another. That's very, very legitimate. You should not be talked out of that by me or anybody else. But be careful about thinking one style is sacred and the others are not. What about the style you'll read about in Psalm, in the Psalms? Um, most American churches today have deviated entirely from loud percussion instruments. In fact, we complain about them today. But that's the way it was in the songbook of ancient Israel. So we're going to be reading lyrics uh, put to music. That's the way it is. Now, I mentioned to you it's poetry. That's the literary genre. But let me just take a minute to distinguish Hebrew poetry from another kind. For instance, when you think of a poem, generally uh, we think of lines that rhyme. They have meter, they have a rhythm, and they rhyme. That's the kind of poetry most of us are familiar with. But that is not characteristic of Hebrew poetry. It doesn't rhyme. The emphasis in Hebrew poetry is not on the repetition of sounds. It's on the repetition of thoughts. So you might read a psalm and say, I do not believe that this particular uh, phrase is repeated so many times. Yeah, but that's Hebrew poetry. So for those of you who complain about the 711 songs, welcome to Hebrew poetry. <laughs> the thoughts are repeated again and again. It's called, in fact, Hebrew parallelism. That's the distinctive of Hebrew poetry. And I'll tell you what I mean. The poet will state something. And then right after the statement the poet makes, he'll utter a parallel statement, which may be identical to the first statement. He's doing it for emphasis and also as a memory device so that it'll stick with you. But there's another, and that might be called repetitive parallelism. There's another form called Parallelism that is like a synonym. So there's a statement and the next one is not identical to the first but essentially says the same thing in other words so as to heighten the meaning. Then there's something called antithetical parallelism. That means a statement is uttered by a poet and the very next one is the antithesis of what he just said. So he's emphasizing his point by stating something and then it's opposite. So as we go through the Psalms, we will point out to you examples of Hebrew parallelism. It's very important to know that and because it will facilitate proper interpretation of this literary genre 
It's called poetry, Hebrew poetry. Alrighty, now with all of that as background, let's dive in and take a look at Psalm 1. That's what we'll look at today. And as you turn to Psalm 1, let me just tell you it's a very fitting opening to the entire book because some take it to be the thematic summary of the entire song book. You'll see in Psalm 1 a contrast between two ways of life, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And again, some say that's the whole purpose of the book of Psalms, to encourage us to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. All right, verse 1, Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. By the way, you shouldn't read the Bible faster than that. Emphasize the words. Uh, Do you notice in Psalm 1 what we could call a progression, a movement, not necessarily a good one, but a movement, a progression. Does anyone see the progression in verse 1? Yeah, okay, great. You, you got it right. Uh, uh, he, he said, walk and stand and sit. Is that what you're going to say, Jess? Um, so that's correct. That's the progression. Can you envision the Christian life as a run? I mean, it says, run the race, does it not? With endurance. So think about someone following Christ, running. And then the next step is to slow down and kind of walk. And then the next step would be to simply stop your direction and stand still. And the very next step would be to sit. In this case, the person running in the right direction is now walking in the counsel of the wicked. This is someone who's giving a little too much ear and a little too much attention to the words of ungodly people. Now, this isn't someone who's who's engaged in a pattern of wickedness. This is someone who's making the subtle drift from a good direction to a not-so-good one. This is someone allowing himself or herself to be unduly influenced by uh, the counsel of the wicked. And then the next step is that this person is standing now in the path or the way of sinners. Now this person is not just having a fleeting experience with the ways of the world. This person is actually in the midst of ungodly, worldly people and is being greatly influenced by them, by his choice. And then the next step in the progression is that this person is now sitting in the seat of scoffers. And that represents a person not having a fleeting experience with worldly ways. This is someone really embracing them now. We were in Israel recently and visited some ancient cities. You've heard of Megiddo, 
one of Solomon's fortress cities. We went there. We went to Dan, which was a city marking the northernmost extent of ancient Israel. Something characteristic of ancient walled cities is that they had an entry gate used for defensive purposes, but not just that. It wouldn't be a gate as we reckon it. It actually would be a series of alcoves in a fairly wide wall. And at the gate of the city is where the leaders of the city would sit so as to conduct their business. And so for this to say, this person is now sitting in the seat of scoffers is to use the image of one sitting in the seat uh, by the city gate uh, being influenced by ungodly city leaders. So can you see the progression from a good run uh, in the direction of righteousness to a standing still and sitting in the midst of wickedness and wicked people? Folks, that is a picture of the way it always works. You don't um, represent Christ well one day. You don't comply with his direction one day and suddenly the next day on the turn of a dime go in the opposite direction. It's usually a slower, almost imperceptible drift. It's a progression away from the God who you belong to, which is why we need each other. I've said from time to time, somewhat facetiously, we don't have to like each other. If we happen to like each other, that's just icing on the cake. But that isn't required. We need each other. Why? Let's say you're drifting imperceptibly, just like this person. You might come to church and hear someone give a word of testimony, even lead out in prayer. Maybe sing a song, maybe preach a sermon, maybe give you a warm greeting. Something that maybe can be useful to God to put a check on your drift away from Him. There's a dynamic to Christian fellowship. God, our Father, uses it to sharpen and encourage one another. So the Christian who says, I can follow God without going to church, is correct. You surely could, but also is very, very prone to this imperceptible drift because there's nobody there to sharpen. The Bible says as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. So, okay, that's what happens in verse 1. Now the person who doesn't engage in this progressive drift away from God is blessed. That's what it says, doesn't it? How blessed. Now, uh, don't misunderstand the word. It means to be satisfied. It means to be content. It means to be filled with joy. And not only that, it means to experience all those things to the extent that people notice it. So it isn't your private subjective experience. It's showing through you that you're a blessed person. In other words, 
your living proof of a God who blesses those who walk righteously. So that's what verse 1 is about. Now verse 2. Uh, he's not like the verse 1 drifter, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. What's another way to describe the law of the Lord? Anyone have an idea, Jess? Yeah, it's the Word of the Lord. Uh, the word law is sometimes used in different ways in the Bible. Sometimes uh, in the more limited sense of the law of Moses. Uh, the law which God gave to Moses from Mount Sinai and which comprises the, say, first five books of the Bible. But in this case and many others, the term law of the Lord means the general reference to all truth which God has expressed and which has been inscripturated or written down under inspiration. So this person is contrasted with the drifter of verse 1. No, his delight is in the Word of God, the law of the Lord, and he proves it. How? Well, in his law he meditates, you see, day and night. So a God-word person is blessed, uh, and a God-word person is not influenced by the ungodly, and a God-word person is influenced by the Word of God. Can you see it? And he meditates on it. Um, when I was a wild-eyed uh, pagan, apart from the God of all truth, I lived in a yoga commune for a while. And uh, I mean, you can pack more junk into 58 years on earth. Oh, man. Um, so, I mean, I could tell you stories, but then you wouldn't want to hang out with me. But, so, but anyway, so I'm in this yoga comedy, and we used to meditate. And the way we were taught to meditate was to clear your mind of all things. It's called the principle of no-mindedness. It's, it comes from Eastern philosophy. You clear your mind of all things. But biblical meditation is the exact opposite. When you meditate biblically, you don't empty your mind. You fill it with the Word of God. You see it? So, so don't, it's the same term, but don't confuse it with transcendental meditation and all this kind of stuff, which is just not what the Bible talks about. So this guy meditates. You know what this means? It means he doesn't have a superficial experience with the Word of God. He knows more than the Lord's Prayer in John 3.16. He is studying it diligently. He's chewing on it all through the day. In fact, the word meditate means to digest it. Look, think of the analogy of physical food. It's there and you know it has potential nourishment, but it's valueless to you until it is ingested. So the first part is to 
put it in your mouth, but you chew on it because unless you chew it up in digestible form, you'll choke on it. It's just too much all at once. So you chew on that thing, whatever it is, until it's swallowable, and you do. You digest it, it's internalized, and now it's going to influence you from the inside out. It's going to uh, be part of your life. And so that's the image here. This guy is blessed. He's not listening to a bunch of stuff out there. He's taking his cues from the Word of God. And it's so important to him that he is really chewing on it day and night. He's just... Listen. His experience in the Word goes beyond Sunday. Listen. If your only feeding time is on Sunday, what are you doing the other six days? I mean, we eat every day physically, don't we? Generally. Nobody that I know of fasts six days and then gorges themselves on Sunday. But that's just not good nutrition. So too spiritually, if you and I aren't feasting on the Word of God, aren't meditating on it the other six days, we're just waiting for Sunday. As good as Sunday is, I think it is around here, but it's not good enough. So that's very, very... You know what's really bad? Most Christians can only run on the fuel put in their tank on Sundays. (gasps) But we can be fueling up all the time in the Word of God. So this is a person who's handling it rightly, who's approaching it diligently, he's, who's reading through it slowly, who's chewing on it, who's asking questions, who's praying it into his life, who's seeking God for understanding, who's applying it. You see? This is not a person who's reading everything about the Bible. This is a person reading the Bible. This is not a person who gets up every morning to read a devotional guide and nothing else. This is a person who gets up every morning to read the Word of God. You don't want someone else's experience in the Word of God. You want yours. That's what a personal relationship is. This guy is doing a whole lot better than the drifter of verse 1. In fact, you know what he's like? Verse 3. He's like a tree. He's not a tree. He's like a tree. You know what that is? It's a literary form. It's called a metaphor. You see? A metaphor. It's when you liken something to something else. So when you read the Bible, if you took it all on face value, you would think this guy is a tree. No, he's like a tree. What kind of tree? Firmly planted. I was talking with Brother Chuck the other day, and uh, we were talking about this and He gave this, I think, great illustration and boy, I was going back and forth in my mind about whether I was going to give him credit for it. uh, I so much don't want to, but I just have to. Uh, This is a great illustration. He said, boy, we just came through Ike. Some trees withstood the turbulent winds while others did not. What's the difference? He said the root system. That's what's in view here. The one who's feasting regularly, day and night on the Word of God, has a developed root system such that the winds of life are much less prone to up 
uproot him. See, he's like a tree firmly planted and by streams of water. So that means sustenance and healthfulness, does it not? Not only that, it yields its fruit in its season. The tree's not working at bearing fruit, losing sleep over it. The tree is not thinking through it. Fruit for a firmly planted, well-watered tree just comes naturally. It pops out. That's the way it is. When the tree has a good root system and is well-watered, pop! Here comes the fruit. This person, likened to a tree, yields fruit, is productive. And its leaf doesn't wither. There's a, there's a quality of healthfulness rather than deterioration. And in whatever he does, now we're moving past the tree and we're getting to the he, whatever he does, he prospers. What a contrast. The person who drifts into worldly ways and listens to the gobbledygook of politicians. Sorry. But it is gobbledygook. You cannot depend on it. Uh, and if you do, wow. So, so, God does not make promises He cannot keep. Uh, that's His alone. <laughs> so anyway, let me press on, Charlie, if you don't mind. And, and, and so... So, um, this is the character of the person who feeds instead on the Word of God, which never disappoints. He, he's secure, he's stable, he's sustained, he's healthful, he is fruitful. And it says, in whatever he does, he prospers. So, let me talk to you about prosperity just for a few hours, uh, a few minutes. <laughs> And the reason is, um, there is actually a, a school of theological thought called prosperity theology. And these are people who teach that it is God's will for his kids to prosper, generally financially. You are to get the Father's best, and so part of your inheritance here is for you to have all the money you need and beyond. The luxuries of life are to be yours. And all you have to do is lay claim to it by faith. And you could even get someone to team up with you. That's called getting someone to enter into agreement with you. We're going to agree that God's going to give you whatever, how many dollars. And if you don't get it, it's because your faith is defective. So that's prosperity theology. There's nobody on your staff here that I know of who holds to prosperity theology. So you just need to know that is not our perspective. And that's not a Baptist thing. That's a Bible thing. So let me just show you, just from verse 3, two things about prosperity that rule out prosperity theology. Not only is it inconsistent with the Scriptures, it's inconsistent with our observation of life. 
there are Christians all over the world who are fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who don't have much at all about the world, what the world has to offer materially. Hard for us to relate to because we're in America, a very wealthy nation, in spite of the economic downturn. But most of the other uh, Christians world over are living in poverty. Do we say all of them have defective faith? Where's their prosperity? So this flies in the face of normal observation, but also the scriptures. So for instance, do you notice verse 3 says, this man will yield fruit in its season. See, prosperity theology talks about prosperity on demand. You positively confess the outcome you want. You hold God to it. And he's obligated to deliver the goods. But this verse does not teach prosperity on demand. It teaches fruitfulness in its season. What this means is a loving God who provides for all our needs does so when he deems we need it, not when we demand it. Fruit is born in its season and your uh, perspective on your season (laughs) to be blessed is different than God's. So the prosperity theology of the Bible is the awareness that if we are delighting ourselves in the Lord, He'll take care of us. And in each of the seasons of life, He'll give us what we need so as to get us through. So this is not prosperity on demand. Secondly, you notice the one of whom the great uh, results of verse 3 are given. The guy in verse 2, what's he doing? His delight is in the Word of God and he meditates on it all the time. In other words, if a person is showing sufficient respect to God's Word that he or she is diligently studying it in its context, looking at it according to its figures of speech, not interpreting it uh, in a distorted way, then that person will be thinking and doing what is consistent with God's Word. And if one thinks and does what is consistent with God's Word, God promises that person will prosper in life and be fruitful. So that's different than the prosperity theology today where someone will say, I'm believing God for my healing. That sounds really super spiritual. But did God promise the person that? If the person says yes, then they point to something in the Bible. What if that promise in the Bible doesn't apply to them? Do you know not everything in the Bible applies to you? For instance, when was the last time you sacrificed in your backyard an unblemished male lamb? Why don't you do that? That's in the Bible. Ladies, not a one of you is here with your heads covered. In fact, some of you have short hair. Do you know the Bible says not to do that? 
you are all violating the scriptures. Unless you study that particular practice in its context and find out what the principle is behind it. That's what I mean when I say not every... How about this? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Is it to be taken literally? No, because it's a figure of speech called hyperbole. Hyperbole is deliberate exaggeration to emphasize a statement. So what's behind that statement is, if you are looking at something that is waging war against your soul, stop looking at it. Even though if you stop looking at it, you'll be missing out on something pleasurable, so what? It's better for you to miss out on that than for you to defile your soul. That's what it means. How do we know that? You look at it. It's a figure of speech. You examine it in its context. Now, I'll make a dogmatic statement, but I defy you to prove me wrong. I want you to show me one popular teacher of modern-day prosperity who has biblical training, formal biblical training. I dare you. Show me one. Examine the biographical statements, if you could even find one, of the country's most popular prosperity teachers, one of whom is in Houston. I didn't say he's a deceiver. I didn't, I'm not questioning. Some people do. I'm just saying he doesn't have the capacity to keep from leading people astray because he doesn't have the tools with which to handle the scripture accurately. The Bible says, be diligent to present yourself as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. How can you do it if you don't have the tools with which to do it? Does that mean only those who have formal biblical training can get in the Bible? No. But only those who have formal biblical training, in my opinion, can be the primary teaching and preaching representatives of the Word of God to the sheep allotted to their fold. Could I tell you something? I wouldn't go to a church in spite of the fact that it may have wide hallways, lots of bathrooms, and music I like if the preachers and teachers were not handling accurately the Word of Truth. I mean, I can go to the bathroom when I go home. But I want to be fed by someone who's handling the Word of God accurately. So folks, if someone is, then the promise is you'll prosper because you're not claiming things apart from the Word of God. You're not laying claim to promises that are not given to you. You're not holding God to certain guarantees He never promised you. How do you know that? Because you're meditating on the Word of God day and night. You're handling it systematically. You're not writing best-selling books that include Scripture so wrenched out of their intended context as to do a gross disservice to the Word of God. Come on. People writing books about eternal matters who know not from whence they speak. 
Come on. So anyway, that's what the Bible says. Just in one verse about prosperity, look verse 4. The wicked are not so. The wicked are not like that guy, that gal, firmly planted, prosperous, fruitful, secure. No, they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. You know, that's, it's like grain, husks of grain. You know, they, they, you, you take it, you throw it up into the air, the good stuff falls to the ground, the wind blows away the other stuff. In other words, the wicked, you know, they're neither here nor there. The wind drives them away. That's been proven true historically. I mean, where is it? Whatever happened. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin. Do you remember a guy named Ceausescu? Most of you don't. That's my point. But he's lived in our generation. He was a mad dictator in Romania just a few years ago, relatively speaking. Where is he? But if I mention to you a guy like, I don't know, J. Vernon McGee, Billy Graham. How, How about... Uh, let's talk about deceased saints. Charles Spurgeon, you know him? Martin Luther? The Wesleys? Can you see they have an enduring contribution? But wicked people, that's why I don't worry about too much about them. They're just like chaff. Therefore, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Whoa. You know what that means? There's judgment. You do not have to wait to get to the New Testament to find out about judgment to come. Let me make another statement. Don't hold it against me. There's nothing new in the New Testament. Nothing new. Let me explain. Let me explain. What I mean is the truths of the New Testament are found in seed form in the Old Testament. And absolutely clarified, brought to maturity and fulfillment in the New Testament. So there is nothing in the New Testament that God just made up. For instance, he talks about a new and better covenant. The writer of Hebrews says this. A better high priest, a better tabernacle, not made with hands, but in the heavenlies. How does any of that make any sense unless you had the old stuff to precede it. So that's what God does. Lays a foundation in things and then being the master teacher shows us a far better fulfillment of these things. So judgment, the concept of an eternal judgment is not a New Testament idea. You're reading about it right here in Psalm 1. The wicked won't stand in the judgment. You know what that means? They will be judged but will not receive an acquittal. They won't stand. They're going to receive a verdict of guilty as charged. Nor sinners. Hebrew parallelism. One statement about the wicked. They're not going to stand in the judgment. An additional statement about them. They're not going to be in the assembly of the righteous. That's right. So God makes a separation between people groups, but it's different than the separation we make. We make separations on the basis of age and gender and race. God don't do that. God makes a separation on the basis of who is righteously related to Him and who is not. And those two people groups will be eternally separated. One will not 
stand in the judgment and as a result that people group will not share in the assembly of the righteous. Want to know what the New Testament equivalent is? A passage like this in 1 John. He who has the Son, so that's one people group, he who has the Son has the life. Here's the second people group. But he who does not have the Son, see God only divides us that way, shall not see life, but the wrath of God already abides on him. See, So we better not divide in any other way. There are those who are in right standing with God and there are those who are not. Now how do you get to be in right standing? Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What does that mean? The Hebrew word for know doesn't mean just intellectual awareness. It means relational intimacy. So, how do you get to be distinguished from the wicked and in right standing with God? It's not by being better than anybody else. It's by being related to the God of all righteousness. He knows. He's married. He's wedded. He's in a covenant relationship. He has intimacy with those who are righteous. He has a parental connection, a bond, and a knowledge, and a watch care with regard to the righteous. But the way... This is antithetical parallelism. First thought, now the opposite of it. But the way of the wicked will perish. There's an enduring quality for those who are righteously related to a holy God. And that enduring quality of life is not shared by the wicked. They suffer eternal perishing. But the way of the righteous is known by God. So biblical righteousness is not so much about right doing as much as it is about right standing. If you are standing rightly in relationship with God, right doing is the fruit of that relationship. You're a tree planted in the right position. You're planted by springs of water which give eternal life. You bear fruit in your season. It's not you doing it. It's the water and the root system which produces fruit in you. Your right living is a byproduct of your right standing. So in seed form, in Psalm 1, you have the way of salvation. So folks, what do we do? Lots of applications. One, um, don't segregate from other people groups. Let God segregate as He chooses the two people groups. Those who have the Son and those who don't. Eternally. Value the people group we are in by God's grace. And do everything in your power to bring in those outside of that people group so that they can share in this people group. And... 
Watch the drift, which all of us are subject to. Prone to wander is a song we sing, used to sing. Prone to wander. It is a proneness in our lives. Um, We need each other. (laughs) We need to be in an environment where the value system is the worship of Almighty God. Where the counsel, the discussion, the interaction is based on biblical truth and not all kinds of... These politicians are laboring over when life begins. And they're laboring over it so as to give the politically correct answers so as not to alienate various potential voting blocks. But the Bible is pretty clear about when life begins. It does not begin at conception. It begins way before conception. Psalm 139 says, Thou hast ordained for me the days that were for me before there was yet one of them. Almighty God sees the potential and value of the growing child before the child has been conceived. He exists in eternity past. So our politicians, I suppose, doing the best they could, but darkened in their understanding, are wrestling with these issues. But the Word of God settles it for us. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I don't. That's not the point. The point is, be careful about being influenced uh, by those who are scoffers. Don't sit in the way of scoffers. Do your part. Be a good Christian citizen. Pay taxes. Vote. Pray for all of these people that they not be hurt or or, I don't know, killed. This would be hard. We don't want any of this to happen. Sure, pray. But don't be taken in. I have a plan for correcting the deal and I can make it work. How could you make something work that you broke? Am I... All right, I'm listening. But I do not want to be influenced by mere words that cannot be backed up by fact. Don't misunderstand. I'm not cynical. I just know who to look to as the commander-in-chief and it isn't it isn't any of these parties. Uh, I mean, I, I vote. Don't I belong to a political party? Don't misunderstand. I serve in the military the whole deal. But that's not where my hope is. <laughs> if only we get the right administration. What? <laughs> the right administration is made of the same stuff you and I are. <laughs> Frail, sinful humans. My hope is built on nothing. We should sing that. Do you know that one? Let's sing it. Help me get going. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So we help each other in the days ahead to have our feet firmly planted on the rock until the time of His return. Blessings to you. See you next time.